Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Daniel Yellen. And I'm Tiffany Lin. And today on the show, we had the opportunity to talk with Professor Michael Posner. Professor Posner is the Jerome Kohlberg Professor of Ethics and Finance at Stern. He's also the director of the Center for Business and Human Rights, the first ever human rights center at a business school. And prior to joining Stern, he served in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2013 as Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. And that was just in the last 10 years. He's led multiple human rights organizations around the world. He's worked with literal rock stars. Like actual rock stars, he started an organization with Peter Gabriel. And probably had the most interesting summer of his first year of law school that you'll ever hear about. We were able to cover a really wide array of topics in this conversation. Um, He's led such an interesting life in the service of others and in the service of advocacy. And we just think that you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I was really excited to hear his perspective just on what businesses can do, what people in businesses can do with regards to human rights. It's not something you hear every day. So really excited for all of you to listen to this. And with that, let's go. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Michael Posner, welcome to Stern Chats. My pleasure to be here. We're really excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, Something we always like to do is start from the beginning. So one of our first questions we have for you is just, what was it like growing up in your household? Well, it was, uh, I had a happy, um, unmemorable childhood, I would say. I grew up in the American Midwest in Chicago um, and, uh, you know, very uh, easy uh, uh, childhood, Uh, had a lot of friends, a lot of friends, a lot of fun. I was an only child, but lived in a building, an apartment building where there were probably 20 kids my age. So we ran around in packs and... uh, my dad was a lawyer uh, and did a lot of work uh, in the public sphere. So I suppose that's part of what got me thinking about what I do. Um, but I, uh, I really, I loved uh, Chicago. I loved growing up and, and, uh, and it was a good start to a, to a life. Was there an expectation when you were growing up that you too would become a lawyer? I don't think an expectation. I don't remember my parents ever... Uh, saying to me, you ought to think about becoming a lawyer. But I was aware of what my dad was doing and that so many of his friends were involved in the law. So, you know, yellow legal pads lying around the house, I suppose, were subliminal messages to me that that was an option. Um, But I never, it was not something that they said, oh, you better become a lawyer. And so you went to Michigan for your undergrad and then went on to Berkeley for law school. And I've heard you had a very interesting summer experience after 1L year. Um, Is that true? And could you tell us about it? Sure. So um, I uh, Berkeley Law had a program where a number of us were guaranteed a position with city government in San Francisco after our first year. And it was hard for first-year law students to get a job. So I signed up and I showed up at City Hall 
And the uh, man behind the desk told me that my I was being assigned to run the legal service office in the Mission District. And I protested. I said, you know, there must be a mistake. I just finished my first year of law school. I actually don't know anything. Uh, and he said, well, don't worry. They're shutting down the office this summer. So I said, well, that doesn't sound really very appealing to me. Are there any alternatives? And he looked at my resume. And in college, I had been a zookeeper in Chicago for four summers. And so he said, laughingly, uh, well, you could always be a zookeeper. And I said, really, is that an option? And he said, no, no, I was just kidding. And I said, well, I'd much rather be a zookeeper than shut down the legal service office. So he said, all right, well, I'll call. And he called the zoo. And to, I was lucky, I guess, that one of the zookeepers had been bitten by an animal that morning. And they said, if you can get this guy down here by two o'clock, he has a job. And so I spent my first summer as a law student uh, shoveling uh, animal uh, manure and keeping cages clean. And I had a wonderful summer outdoors, and I think it refreshed me for the rest of law school. What were those conversations like with your, with your classmates when everyone kind of came back and said what they had worked on that summer? Well, I think many people, there were a lot of driven characters in our school, as probably true at all law schools. And a lot of them thought, boy, this guy's a real flake. Um, he's never going to mount anything. Um, a few people thought it was amusing, I guess, um, but it was certainly not the norm. That's amazing. Um, how I'd love to hear the kind of transition then from, you know, one L year zookeeper to becoming very interested in human rights and then becoming a human rights lawyer. Yeah, so I had no um, sense of human rights as a subject. Uh, I didn't know very much about the world. Again, I grew up in, you know, in the mid middle of the country. Uh, for me, a big adventure was going to school in California. Um, but I did know I wanted to do use the law as a <clears throat> way to advance uh, public interest and social justice. And I got that again from home and place I went to high school made a big emphasis, put a big emphasis on community engagement. So I went to law school, not with the thought that I was going to be a corporate lawyer, but thought that I would be somewhere either in government or in the public interest world. And a professor of mine, and, and I should say, I was very young. I was young for my class. I went straight from college to law school. And I had thoughts after my first year Maybe I ought to take a year off and travel or, you know, a lot of my classmates, I think the average age was 28 or 29 coming in. So I was really a kid among people who had life experience. And I had a professor, a professor named Frank Newman, who was the former dean, who was interested in international human rights. And I went to see him about my plan to take time off. And he said, well, why don't you work in Europe? and work in human rights, I think I can get you an assignment. And then you have the best of both worlds. You'll be getting credit. You'll be actually living someplace in Europe, and you'll be doing something along the lines you're interested in. So he got me a position with a group called the International Commission of Jurists in Geneva. And I got a letter from them saying, you're going to be studying uh, Idi Amin in Uganda. With, at the time, there was a massive human rights crisis in that country. And I literally went back to my 
to the library and I pulled out an atlas of the world and I found Uganda on the map. Um, I really was starting with no, you know, I was starting at, at the first one yard line. I had a lot to learn. And I spent the next eight months um, really becoming a kind of mini expert on Uganda, on what was happening there, interviewed more than 100 people and did a report on the first major human rights report on the reign of terror and, and massive violations in Uganda. And so that got me really in the direction of thinking, okay, I sort of came back and I had thought, well, I was going to do something, maybe work for the ACLU or do something in local government. And I thought to myself, you know, here is a place halfway around the world where probably 200, 300,000 people have been killed. I didn't know anything about it. And I thought to myself, why are we spending so much time thinking about things where we're fine tuning things that happen? It doesn't mean we don't have problems in our own society, but we certainly don't have problems like the Ugandans do. I literally, in those hundred interviews, I didn't ever meet anybody who didn't have a family member who'd been killed. And I thought to myself, this is another world. This is another totally different dimension. And so why aren't people paying attention? I actually got sort of angry at the thought that why is this going on in the world and nobody's paying attention? So that sort of reoriented my thinking. And, and I thought there's a big world out there. I don't know very much about it, but I learned about this one country. I wonder what else is going on that we don't know about. So that was really the beginning. Yeah. And then you spent much of your career in many organizations, but one of them being Human Rights First. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that, the organization and how you got involved. Sure. So uh, coming out of law school, um, I <clears throat> applied for all those jobs with the ACLU and others. And they rightly said to me, again, you don't know very much. You have no experience. And I thought to myself, I ought to get, I ought to really understand what lawyers do. Even this is not my, my life's calling. I want to I want to understand what's happening. And I was fortunate enough to get a job going back to Chicago with a big law firm. And I sort of viewed myself as a cultural anthropologist. I was like, I had a plan in my head. I'm going to go for three years or less. I'm going to learn the secret handshake. I'm going to get some skills. And then I'm going to figure out what to do next in my life. And I stuck to that. And it was very liberating, actually. A lot of the people coming in with me were very unsure about where they were going or what they were doing. And the allure of working for a law firm where the pay is very good, where there are lots of you know, perks and benefits, free meals and cars to take you places, things like that, um, was very, you know, it, it drew people in and they got basically stuck and often not thrilled with what they were doing, but they didn't know where else to go. But I was on a three-year plan. I was there to learn as much as I could, to work hard, to absorb all the things that were going on, and then to figure out what to do next. And when I got near that three-year mark, um, I actually was offered a job in Chicago with the U.S. Attorney's Office. That would have been a traditional career, and that would have been great. But then some people approached me um, in fact, the same professor from Berkeley who said there's an organization being created in New York called the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. 
and they're looking, you know, they're, they're in the final stages of interviewing, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, that would be fantastic. And I interviewed like four days later, um, a week later, I was offered the job. And two weeks later, uh, I more or less moved myself to New York. And so that was the beginning of a long stay with Human Rights First. And it was a great adventure for me. You know, I didn't, I, I learned by doing. I made lots of mistakes, but we built a terrific organization now called Human Rights First. And it was an opportunity to sort of test my own limits in terms of um, both being an advocate, but also teaching myself skills in management and human relations and how to deal, how to manage and supervise people. Lots of things that I had never thought about, but I got good on the job training. Uh, again, lots of, it was not a linear path, but I feel really proud of what we did. So, so I imagine that a lot of people might go into their, their profession in the law with that three-year plan vision where they say, okay, in, I'm going to get the experience. I'm going to get a little bit of money in the bank, and then I'm going to go on to do something that I find more meaningful or why I got into this in the first place. But you were actually able to, to pull yourself away from you know what a lot of people would have said is like the traditional safe path. Um, do you think that was just a conviction of character or what was it that drew, like really drew you towards this long career um, in, in advocacy? So I've said to a lot of people, I have a lot of students at Stern elsewhere who come and they want, you know, career advice. They want to, I'm real. My career is not, textbook um it, it was it's been very episodic but i what's what sort of governed me at least is that i followed my heart and um i've said to our kids you know i don't think i've ever had a day where i um wasn't excited about getting up and going to work mm. and i've been at this a long time uh it doesn't mean that there aren't some days where there are challenges there are plenty of those days but I, I feel that I'm doing something that sort of matches my values, my interests. Um, it's both challenging intellectually, but it also feels very comfortable that I don't feel I'm wasting my time or doing something that's counterproductive or stupid. I'm doing something that sort of matches my own, my own values and my interests. And for the, me, at least, that's worked. It doesn't always, it doesn't always feel like I'm doing the logical thing. I, I don't have career planners in my life. Um, and there are probably lots of things, if you go by the book that I did, that were not, you know, technically the right thing to do. Um, but I do feel it, at each turn, I've sort of, you know, followed my gut and uh, tried to do, to be the best I can be in whatever I'm doing. But it's always been consistent with my values and my interests. I feel so privileged to be, you know, born in this country where we have such opportunities. Um, I feel, again, privileged by my own background where I didn't struggle or suffer. And I feel like I want to give something back. And I feel I have some of the tools to do that. And if I can make a difference in somebody else's life, um, that's just a great feeling. In the early 90s, you founded Witness. Um, which is an organization that helps document human rights violations around the world. Um, and I'd just like to know what it's like 
starting one of these organizations from scratch. And also, I wouldn't be my father's son if I didn't ask what it was like <laughs> to work with Peter Gabriel <laughs> on this initiative. Yeah. So um, one of the things I really love is to sort of take an idea and turn it into something more tangible. And Witness evolved, again, not in a, you know, in a textbook way. Witness evolved out of a world music tour, a rock music tour that Amnesty International did in the late 1980s. And, and they, um, they recruited uh, all-star cast of a musical artist, F Peter Gabriel, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, people you've heard of. And they traveled to, I don't know, a dozen or 15 countries around the world. And they played music. There were huge crowds. And they talked about human rights. And they made efforts to protect human rights advocates in those countries. And Peter Gabriel is a musical genius, but he's also an incredibly inventive character and a very um, he's always been sort of testing the limits of technology and uh, and art, and uh, and so logically he carried with him a video camera, and in every place recorded videos of him interacting with human rights activists and the like. And he came back. I had um, a little bit of involvement with that tour. It was a you know sister organization. I knew the people running it. And Peter Gabriel came back and he said, you know, as I'm traveling to the world, I'm in Zimbabwe or I'm in Argentina, these young activists are saying, God, I would love to have a camera like that to record what's going on in my own society. And this was around the time in Los Angeles that the Rodney King video, the video of the L.A. police beating up. Uh, this young African-American guy became a kind of, uh, uh, again, a touch point for our own society. And so Peter put two and two together and he said, you know, we need to figure out a way to get video cameras. And he went to Reebok, the, the tennis, the sneaker people, the athletic shoe people who were a uh, corporate sponsor of the rock tour. And I had, I had some dealings with them around issues relating to you know, apparel industry outsourcing and labor practices, sweatshops, the like. And they said to me, you need to figure out how to deal with Peter Gabriel. We don't quite know how to deal with this. And so I met him. He's a wonderful guy. He's down to earth, completely normal human being in an abnormal world. And <clears throat> we became friends and we started to work together in a very short amount of time. We recruited an ad agency to do a big promotional campaign for Witness. Reebok put some money in. We got some money from, from others in Peter's orbit. And we started a very rudimentary program. We bought some video cameras. And we began to think about, we set up an advisory board. And we began to think about where to place them. And then, of course, we ran into all the problems of how do you train people, what do you do in places where they don't have electricity to charge the batteries? You know, we, it became evident that this was not such a simple proposition. But Peter had a wonderful sense of adventure, always has and always will. And uh, it was just a treat to work with him and to see somebody with that kind of creative talent 
uh, put themselves into a, a place where they're doing good. And we eventually, uh, Witness was honored by VH1, the music station. Um, and there was a big benefit concert in LA, which was a wild experience. But through it all and through the zaniness of the world of popular music and all the characters, Peter has a very solid North Star. He's got a moral compass. He doesn't let it get to him, all the, the craziness. And he was true to the mission and has remained true to the mission of Witness, which is now a thriving organization. And he stayed with it all these years. And he's really done a good job of bringing global music into the American and though I guess I should say the American and British ethos, um, which is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. That really became the the effort to promote world music became sort of the center of his universe over the last 20 years. And he's done an enormous amount. And that was one of the fun things about the VH1 concert. He brought in a number of these global stars, you know, somebody who's a star in West Africa that most Americans had never heard of, and they're brilliant musicians. And Peter had, again, the energy and the commitment to bring them into the into the larger world. And jumping off of that a bit, uh, you have this great history of creating and developing organizations that span across disciplines, you know, even before interdisciplinary um, pushes were in vogue. And I find that really interesting, especially as you're pushing to work on human rights issues. What what inspires that each time, you know, we're always reaching across the table towards organizations. And then now, of course, with the Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, kind of the first of its kind, um, trying to get people together at the table. You know, I think we are increasingly in a world where <clears throat> things are changing rapidly in ways that are unpredictable and where existing institutions, either in government or in the private sector and academia, um, don't move as fast as the change. And so inevitably, I think you have to look at how well are existing institutions willing or capable of responding to the challenges and the opportunities that we face. And, and it, what it means is that often they're not when you do that look. And then you have to say, okay, what's the gap and how do you bridge the gap? And witness is a great example of that, you know, there was a need and it was in nobody's mandate or mission statement to provide video cameras to human rights activists in Africa or Asia. And so if it doesn't exist, then you create it. And I think I feel the same about what we're doing at Stern. Um, business schools have a long, proud tradition of teaching, you know, core business skills, accounting and finance and management and the like. Um, but the world has, in the last 40 or 50 years, the world has changed so dramatically. Globalization, outsourcing of everything, automation. Um, there is so much going on in the world that is not captured in a traditional course about finance or marketing or management. And inevitably, I think business schools need to be responsive to what businesses are now facing, which is a very complicated global environment. If you're working for a multinational company with offices around the world, with manufacturing or 
mining operations around the world with a customer base around the world, you need to think globally and you need to think about what are the biggest opportunities, but also what are the biggest challenges. And so we started from the premise, you know, I'm pro-business, I'm pro-globalization. Global companies have lifted billions of people literally out of poverty in the last 50 years, but we need rules of the road to govern the way global business operates and to deal with issues relating to things like human rights. So I figured if if business schools haven't yet figured that out, I was going to come and try to set an example and then try to, again, replicate that, encourage others to do it. We don't want a monopoly on this field. I want to see every big, every business school really say this is a core part of what we do. And what would it mean for the future of business if other schools adopted this approach, if they adopted centering a business education around an education in in human rights and what it means to have a sustainable supply chain and what it means to be a good global citizen and steward of human rights? So I think it means a couple of things. It On one level, I'd like to see, and part of what I'm doing and trying to do at Stern is to integrate issues of human rights into other courses that are the the core courses that I mentioned. So if you're teaching, let's say, a course in supply chain management, um, a lot of that is a discussion of logistics and where the bottlenecks in supply chains. Those are traditionally things that people think about when they think about supply chains. I'm thinking about who's doing the labor And how are they being treated? And what happens if they're operating in a society where the government's either unwilling or unable to protect its own people? What I call a governance gap. So you get a giant company going into a state where the government's weak and you have a prescription or almost an inevitable result that they're going to be uh, places where workers' rights are not fully protected, health and safety, wages, you, you name it, discrimination, harassment. And so one of the things is for business schools to begin to integrate human rights into their core thinking about how all these other subjects are taught. Not so easy to do that. We all fall into ruts. We do what we do and we keep doing it. And so adding another element is not is a It's a one-on-one conversation with different professors. And then the second thing is to have a dedicated program. And we've set up a center at Stern. We now have eight people there that are doing research, teaching, and we're also very much engaged with private companies, trying to get them to think more about human rights in their own operations, whether it's their supply chains, if they're manufacturing, or if it's Facebook and Google trying to think about their business model and how they moderate content on their site. That's something we're seeing very much right now. But we we keep um, businesses booming. We've got a lot of uh, people coming to us, including a lot of people in industry saying, oh my God, we know now we have these problems. We don't really have the tools or the people to solve them. Um, We need to talk to you about what what we're doing. And those conversations are now happening every, I wouldn't say every week, but every month, somebody comes to us fresh and says, 
um, we need to talk to you. And so we're having a great time. And I think it suggests that the model is right. And we're also beginning to get other schools, other universities, other business schools in Europe, in the U.S. and elsewhere to begin uh, thinking about how to do this as well. So I'm an evangelist for this. I think this is the right, this is the future, I think, for business education. Do the basics, do them well, but focus on things like environment, human rights, development, um, how you deal with corruption. There are a range of issues facing global business and business schools ought to be leading on those issues. Absolutely. Well, I guess um, I ought to say, I'm curious, what again, this is part of the ad hoc nature of my life. Um, I didn't, I, I first thought about doing this. Uh, I came, I was in the government for three and a half years and did a lot of work in this area. And it was clear to me that there was a need for more attention to business and human rights as a field. And I, I came with a colleague who had worked with me at state and we thought about, you know, should this be a NGO, a non-governmental organization? Um, should we try to do this in a law school? There's certain logic to that. And we sort we came to the conclusion pretty quickly, if we're going to talk about business and human rights, we need to be on the home court of business. We want to be in a place where businesses feel comfortable, where it's, it's sort of their domain. So we want to bring our issue to the business world rather than try to bring the business world to wherever we are. And I originally thought, I taught for years at uh, Columbia and Yale Law Schools, Columbia for many years, and I thought, well, maybe I ought to go uptown and see what's going on there. And it became clear to me on the basis of a handful of early conversations that there wasn't going to be the appetite at Columbia. And so I didn't even try. I knew John Sexton, who was then the president of NYU. And we had a lunch and a dinner. And um, I, he said to me, why don't you come work in the law school? And I said, I don't want to be a lawyer telling business what to do. I want to be in the belly of the beast. I want to talk to business leaders, business educators, and business students about what does it mean to do human rights? And so I was really lucky that the then dean at Stern, uh, Peter Henry, um, was receptive to this. He had come from Stanford. He had been in the school only a couple of years, but he was very much looking at the role of business broadly in society. Uh, uh, John Sexton said, go talk to Peter. We hit it off immediately, and the rest is history. He, he really allowed it to happen. And uh, Dean Raghu uh, has also been incredibly supportive. So um, it helps a lot to have the people running the school think that what you're doing is is not nutty. And this this need to be diplomatic, the need to meet people where they are, mm -hmm. so you're not preaching to them, feels like a like a good pivot to to my next question, which is, um, so you mentioned you were you were in government. I feel like that's underselling it a little bit. Um, in 2009, uh, you were nominated by President Obama to serve as the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, <laughs> Human Rights, and Labor. Um, and that's a Senate-confirmed role. And I've always wanted to ask this question, but you're the first person I've met who has gone through it. So what is it like to go through a Senate confirmation? Um, 
it's not an experience that I would recommend highly. Uh, it's, uh, it's long and uh, complicated. Uh, I eventually got through it. It took months. Uh, I, was, I met Secretary Clinton in February, and I didn't start working till September. Um, and so it took a couple of months for the administration to vet me. And then, and which is a long, you know, FBI interviews, interviewing my family and friends, poking around. And then the Senate had its own process, which included a survey of a questionnaire that in my case was 120 pages long. And oh one of the things that I really got a kick of, they asked me to submit for in, in a hard, cover, hard form everything I had ever written uh, in my career relating to the job. And I said, well, you know, I've written, you know, dozens of reports, hundreds of articles, op-ed pieces, whatever. Do you really want all of it? And they said, yeah, we want all of it. So I spent a good amount of time um, poking around, trying to pull together. I'm sure I didn't get all of it, but I got two or three boxes full of stuff and I sent it down to Washington. And then I get a call back from them a couple, maybe a month later, three weeks later, and they said, um, you sent us a lot of stuff. Will you tell us what's the most controversial? <laughs> and I said, well, it sort of depends on who you're talking to. But if I went to the trouble of gathering all that stuff, it's on you to read it. <laughs> and they said, well, can you give us some hints? And I did. I said, well, maybe you ought to look at these things. But it was, uh, it was, there was a lot of that kind of stuff, lots of detail. Uh, at the end of the day, I think I was confirmed by, without a vote. Um, but I was lucky. Uh, some others that I'm close to had real fights, and uh, I sort of snuck in, in the heel and the tail end of them. This is this is great, and I know we have a lot more questions. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Professor Michael Posner. Stern Chats is brought to you by the person you mean to be. The person you mean to be is an inspiring book by social psychologist and NYU Stern professor Dolly Chug on how to confront difficult issues, including sexism, racism, inequality, and injustice, so that you can make the world and yourself better. How do we stand up for our values? How do we respectfully talk politics with those who disagree with us? How can we be better colleagues and avoid being well-intentioned barriers to equality? Dolly Chug answers these questions by starting with a look at ourselves. New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant says, Finally, an engaging, evidence-based book about how to battle biases, champion diversity and inclusion, and advocate for those who lack power and privilege. The Person You Mean to Be is available on Amazon or at dollychug.com. That's D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H dot com. And by the way, you can also check out her free monthly newsletter, Dear Good People, at the same website. Dollychug.com. Something that's really near and dear to my heart and I've worked on is kind of the responsibilities of internet companies. And as the last decade has shown, it's become so pervasive. We can't even imagine setting a box of documents somewhere anymore. You either Dropbox it, email it, send a link. Um, and you have always been part of these discussions around internet freedom and human rights. Um, from Witness, the Global Network Initiative, to now the Center for Business and Human Rights, and 
where they're looking at disinformation, content moderation, all of these pieces. And you've had this kind of front row seat to both how major tech companies, but also public policy officials are thinking and dealing about these issues. And I'd love to hear your perspective just of how that's changed over time. Yeah, that's a big and, and an important question. Um, let, me, let me just try to take a couple of phases on that. The, you know, I did work, as you mentioned, on the thing called the Global Network Initiative, which was an early effort to bring some of the big tech companies, uh, Microsoft, uh, Google, Yahoo at the time, eventually Facebook, into a discussion about free expression and privacy. And it was a, what we call a multi-stakeholder initiative. It involved those companies, but also some NGOs, some academics, some uh, public investors. And the idea was to create a kind of set of standards. And we were very much focused on uh, the Chinese firewall, the Iranian uh, government's uh, crackdown of the Green Revolution and, uh, and the like, where there were governments basically trying to curtail free speech. And that got me interested in the issues. And even though the companies were still, most of those companies were still early on, where this was 2006, seven, eight, um, there was a sense that we're about to enter a new realm in terms of the power of the internet. When I got into government, um, because I was interested in this, we, I took over an initiative um, where the federal government was giving money to basically help promote what was we called an internet freedom agenda. And it was uh, 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 mandated actually during the Bush administration that Con Congress gave $15 million to the State Department to promote internet freedom. A lot of that was technologies to circumvent the Chinese firewall. So we took that initiative, we kind of rebooted it to be more of a training for activists on uh, digital safety and how to use the internet affirmatively. But already you could see some of the challenges. Secretary Clinton gave three big speeches on internet freedom. We set up a diplomatic group called the uh, Freedom Online Coalition of governments that were supportive. And so I came out of that experience thinking, God, there's so much potential for the internet to, to be the kind of global town square, cross borders, allowing free access to information on, you know, promoting education and commerce uh, and political discourse. And our challenge is to kind of keep it open. So I'm, I'm an, uh, an advocate for the internet. I think it's an enormously powerful tool, fourth industrial revolution, all of that. When I came to Stern, I knew the companies and I brought them in and I said, you know, we're, at, again, this is 2013, 14. We're at a place now where everybody sees the potential and your companies are growing like crazy, but there's some risks associated with this. And we're beginning to see it with the way ISIS is promoting disinformation to recruit terrorists. We're seeing with the Russians that are clearly mucking around. This is before the uh, 2016 election when it hit everybody over the head. And so we began really to talk to them about what are your responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis not only free expression, but privacy. And then how do you deal with what you're doing, your business model? This is a business question to me. And so 
we've been on a real, it's been an adventure the last uh, six, seven years as this discussion has evolved. And I really do feel like I've had a front row seat. Absolutely. Especially this kind of tension between freedom of expression and ensuring that is available across the world, but also how much expression that is harmful should be allowed. And especially now, I mean, 2020, we're finally seeing some of the major platforms like Twitter and Facebook taking some steps to be more proactive, but it's it, often it feels like it comes up short. What what do you think they should be doing? So I both have sympathy for how complicated this is, sympathy for the companies for what they're up against. But I also am incredibly frustrated that they've not taken greater responsibility for what they're doing. And so, you know, early on in these discussions, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things that we've, I said to the companies and my colleague Paul Barrett have said is, you can't be, um, you can't just hide behind the First Amendment, the notion that there's unlimited free speech on the internet. And the companies have said rightly, you know, we're not news organizations, we're not editors of the New York Times. And we've said to them, that's true, but you're also not plumbers running pipes. You're something in between, and we need to define a third way, a third paradigm, a new paradigm that explains basically you have some editorial control of what's on your site. You moderate content. If you didn't do that, it would be an unholy mess. And so the rules of how you moderate content, who does it, where it fits in the company, is really a business decision that has huge public consequences. And the company stubbornly have stuck to this notion, Mark Zuckerberg said it a few weeks ago in a congressional hearing, um, we're not arbiters of the truth. They're holding on to this notion, we're just plumbers. They're plumbers except when they're not. And so what happens is people will scream about one thing or another and they'll say, okay, we're going to make an exception to that. Some of the exceptions are obvious. They've said for a long time, we're not going to support child pornography. There's laws about that. They said to the German government when they passed a law threatening to fine them significantly on hate speech, they hired a bunch of people who spoke German and they took down hate speech in the German language. But they have been so reluctant on so many other things that are so consequential to our democracy. Um, it wasn't until two weeks ago that Facebook decided to take down Holocaust denial. Um, this is a debate we've been having with them for three years. I mean, how, you know, and, and the notion was, well, some people, you know, in good faith believe the Holocaust never happened. I'm sorry, the Holocaust happened. It's provably false to say otherwise. And if that's flooding your system, that's a problem for democracy. So that's where we are now. We've taken a pretty deep look, deep dive at content moderation and said the companies need to do that themselves. They can't outsource it. Again, they have all these, they're paying people poor wages in India or the Philippines to sit in front of screens for many hours. Um, they're not owning the problem. And they need to basically say, we have a content overseer within Facebook, within YouTube. We're gonna make this a business priority. And so that's the fight we're having. I would say we're winning little battles, but um, 
it's clear that there's a lot more that they need to do fundamentally to change the way they run their businesses. A common, I guess, recommendation that a lot of lawmakers have made is that, okay, we need to take these big tech companies, we need to break them up, we need to regulate them more heavily. Um, You've suggested an alternative, at least to solving this problem. I I believe you suggested a change to generally how they're like corporate governance is and having somebody in the executive suite of that company who's in charge of issues like this. Can you talk about that proposal? Sure. Um, We talk to people at Facebook all the time. I'll give that as an example. There are probably seven or eight different people at Facebook that have a piece of the problem I'm describing. Somebody's at Instagram, somebody's uh, in charge of inauthentic, uh, removing inauthentic content. Somebody's in charge of dealing with terrorism. Somebody's dealing with elections. Um, it's remarkable how often they don't know what each other are doing. And, and, and we're sitting there informing them, oh, we just talked to X yesterday. Did you know that you're doing it? Oh, that's really good to know. And so um, it makes sense to me, just again, as a sort of business 101, management 101, if you have a core business function that's being done in multiple places that are not coordinated, it requires supervision and leadership. And so what we've said to them is there needs to be a senior, again, content overseer, uh, like an editor, but somebody who probably has news judgment. We've recommended people, you know, retired editor from the Wall Street Journal or somebody who's worked in television news. Somebody has a sense of, um, you know, integrity of content and put them up there in the near the C-suite reporting to the people running the company and have them take ownership of this very important piece of the business. And they've been resistant to doing that. And they'll say, well, we have this person, that person. That to me is a misalignment in terms of their business priority. And uh, I think it'll change, but it's not changing easily. At the same time, uh, to Daniel, to go back to something you said a moment ago, we have not been advocating for antitrust breaking up the companies. Now the federal government has sued Google. We're sort of agnostic on that. I'm not convinced if Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were three different companies that we would solve the problem. Or if YouTube and Google were separate companies, we'd solve the problem. Um, These are huge enterprises that have enormous reach and they, we need to figure out a way for them to basically take greater responsibility for that, which they're benefiting from. They are advertising companies in the final analysis. We're not their customers. It's the advertisers. We provide the content that allow, that make the advertisers salivate and leads to huge revenues for the companies. And we've got to figure out what it, what's wrong with the current model and how do we change it. It's actually kind of funny because when Tiffany and I met each other at the beginning of last year, uh, this so was true. exactly what our first <laughs> conversation was with each other. We, we, we talked about whether it made sense to break up, to break up the tech companies. Um, 
Agreed. So it's I remember fun to come it was full a, circle on that. I think we were both we had a drink in hand it was one of those mixers and um we were both kind of yelling loudly over the roar about how it's so much more complicated than that. It is complicated. Again, I have sympathy for the companies as much as we've been and are very critical of some of the things they're doing. Um, this has exploded beyond anybody's wildest imagination or expectation. The thought that there are several billion people on Facebook, um, that the, the YouTube is getting so many hundreds, thousands of hours of video every minute, every hour. Um, the, the complexity and the scope and scale is so vast that this is a big, it's a big challenge. But again, these companies have made you know, huge amounts of money with very lean staffs. And so our, our analysis, which is not you know, probably a happy one for their auditors or for their financial people, is that they need to invest a lot more money to get this right. On a different note, um, as of recording this, there's draft legislation in the European Union um, that would mandate human rights considerations to be part of corporate due diligence. And looking over that legislation, I, I was pretty shocked to learn that about a third of companies do environmental and human rights due diligence, and less than 20% of companies uh, cover the entire supply chain in doing their due diligence process. So I know this would be a European law, but what do you think the implications of, of such legislation could have on American companies who do business around the world if this were to pass? Well, first of all, the, the EU proposal would um, have huge consequences for any companies doing business in Europe. Um, and, and I think it's not just the Europeans. Th this started in France in 2017. They enacted a due diligence, compulsory due diligence law. But it's now in Australia. There are, there are a range of countries that are looking at this. And I could see American states. It will not surprise me that the state of California will come up with something similar. Having said that, um, I, and, and being very sympathetic to the spirit of this, I think courts are going to have a hard time uh, opining on uh, what constitutes due diligence. An American company operating, let's say, in Papua New Guinea, running a mine, or an American company manufacturing in India, um, there's, courts are going to be very nervous about evaluating whether the company's own due diligence meets a legal threshold. And so I think what, what's happened is um, we have not done the intermediate step, which is to figure out what are the standards and metrics for every industry. We were talking about tech a few minutes ago. We could be talking about fishing and farming. We could be talking about you know, the construction industry in the Gulf. There are a range of different industries with very different challenges, but we need to have a baseline of what are the standards for human rights? How do you measure it? Parsons Law says anything that's important you measure, and if it becomes public, it improves exponentially. So we need to, I think, if the due diligence laws are going to have teeth and be meaningful, they have to be due diligence as a concept has to be broken down into what exactly, due diligence of what. Right now, it's up to every company to do due diligence, which is a great concept, but every company gets to decide what it is. 
And so I think courts, if a company says, oh, we do due diligence, I think courts are going to say, okay, well, they did due diligence. And it'll be the outliers that say, well, we don't care, and they'll get caught. But but I imagine there'll be a great industry of people want a job in due diligence on human rights. I imagine there'll be lots of job openings. So I feel like when we're talking a lot about these issues, they feel they feel heavy, they feel sometimes insurmountable. And I'm curious what advice you have for young people, students who are early in their careers trying to promote the consideration of human rights, but also just trying to get by day to day in their company. What can they do uh, in their position? Yeah, it's a great question. I tell my students, first class, every class, um, I'm teaching you for your seventh or your eighth job. Um, these are the things, if you're in a C-suite, if you're running a big company or you're advising a big company, these are the kinds of things that will keep you up at night. Um, and, and, and a CEO of, of a Nike or a Coke or Facebook um, deal with these things when, when the uh, attention focuses on them and there's public attention. These are the things that keep them up at night. I don't expect if people, Stern graduates are going to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, um, I would be shocked if their supervisors asked them on the first week of the job or even the first year what their views are about human rights. Um, but they ought to bring sensibilities about these issues, be aware of where some of the tensions are, and then think about as they rise in the ladder as they get more experience and become more senior in companies, look for opportunities to integrate this into the way the business is run. And I think there's all kinds of opportunities in, in virtually every industry to do better. So I would view this, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I think, you know, I look for problems that are big but where you see the potential for solution. And I think none of these problems are insurmountable. They're difficult, but there's lots of way stations along the road where you can make a difference. Um, if you're mindful of it, if you're aware of, you know, you keep that North Star to moral leadership and values, and you look for opportunities not to come in and tell Goldman Sachs they have to readjust their business model, in the first week on the job, that wouldn't be sensible. Um, but to be thinking about wherever you land as a business, as a business person, um, where do I, where can I make a difference? And look for those places where move, where the world is changing, as it has, let's say, with technology, or as it did. We got to Stern five weeks later. Rana Plaza, the factory uh, complex in Bangladesh, collapsed. Twelve hundred people were killed. And all of a sudden, the apparel companies are trying to figure out what to do about factory safety. That's an opportunity. And people working in that industry at that moment had the wind behind their back if they wanted to push for an agenda that included human rights. So I, I really think this is actually a golden moment, a golden opportunity for students not to say, this is all I'm going to do, but to have this as a skill set, a, a, a part of the background. Coming out of business school, you ought to know enough about this when in your seventh job, something happens, you can pull out the notes from the class you took and say, oh yeah, there is something out there. I remember 
the due diligence discussion. I remember the discussion about, you know, how you deal with buyer-supplier relations and purchasing practices in a supply chain. There are real tools here that are being developed that people ought to be aware of and, and put to use. And I'm really glad that Stern is on the forefront of leading in this kind of education and preparing business leaders to to lead on these issues in the future. And Professor, um, from both Tiffany and I, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Um, we really enjoyed this conversation and uh, hope that a lot of other people will too. Well, thank you for having me. I also enjoyed it and good luck to you both. Thank you so much.